next set of cases was presented to Drs. Miller, Perez, and Weiner, beginning with a patient from the practice of Dr. Alan Astral. So I have a 71-year-old woman. She's Russian-speaking. She presented with three separate breast masses, and needle biopsy of one of them was invasive lobular carcinoma. There was ERP or positive HER2 new negative. The surgeon then referred the patient to me for induction chemotherapy. And so she has hypertension. I treated her with TC for four cycles and sent her back to the surgeon. There was a minimal decrease in size of the dominant mass. So she had a completion mastectomy last month. And at mastectomy, there was a 5.2-centimeter residual invasive lobular carcinoma with involvement of the nipple dermis by direct extension. And in addition, 19 of 22 nodes were positive. Can you talk a little bit more about the woman herself, her lifestyle, her situation, and how she did with the TC? Well, she is retired. She lives with her children. She did not enjoy the TC, but she came in with her children for every treatment. What were the things that were most problematic? Hair loss, nausea. She had complaints of bone pain, weakness, fatigue. Did you give her growth factors, incidentally? Yes, I did. So, Edith, very common, very problematic situation. The NSABP has a trial. I don't know if there are other trials out there. The NSABP is looking at sunitinib versus control and people like this. What about this general situation? How do you approach it off-study, and what are the studies looking at this? Yeah, the first issue in this particular situation is why neoadjuvant therapy? So was this done because the patient was going to have a lumpectomy? Because otherwise, if I have a patient who has three separate tumors and mastectomy is going to be the recommendation, we usually proceed with mastectomy and then adjuvant therapy. Although in this situation, it was actually quite interesting that there was no response because in this situation, if you had done mastectomy and then TC, you wouldn't have given her treatment that helped her at all. The three palpable abnormalities were in the same quadrant of the breast, and I think the surgeon had some hope that perhaps he would be able to do some kind of breast conservation procedure, and that's why he sent the patient to me. That's very good. And then the issue of how to manage a patient with residual significant disease after this kind of two-drug therapy, well, the answers are not there. The current approaches are to either test chemotherapy, a different type of chemotherapy, or chemotherapy in combination with biological therapy or biological therapy. And the answers are not there. We've actually seen many patients like this that I've seen in referral. And what typically happens is that I see patients who have received TC, and then they don't respond, and then they're referred. And I tell you, pretty consistently, these patients have received anthracyclines, and the anthracyclines have led to significant tumor reduction. So in a situation like this where we don't have a study, I would manage the patients with an anthracycline-based regimen. However, in this case, the patient is 70 years old. It seems like poor tolerability. But also so the tumors ER positive. Yeah, but she has 19 out of 20 positive notes. I mean, she's going to get hormone therapy. Oh, oh sure. But this so you're saying you give her chemo in addition? I would. I would because this is a lot of residual disease. And this patient, 70-year-old, she only has hypertension, appears as a significant comorbidity. So looking at seer data of life expectancy, it's expected to be more than 20 years for a 70-year-old woman. So I would manage her with some anthracycline-based regimen and then followed by hormonal therapy. It's, again, 19 positive notes. Wow, this is a lot of disease. Eric? 
did you stage her initially? Yeah, I did a PET CT scan. There was no disease outside the breast. Yeah. So I might do a bone scan since actually for sclerotic metastases, my understanding is that actually bone scans are actually better than PET scans. And I would be looking for excuses to do less rather than do more. And I think it's actually quite likely that she has stage four disease. In the absence of stage four disease, I would clearly treat her with post-mastectomy radiation and with endocrine therapy. I think that the value of chemotherapy is small to less than small. Certainly in a younger patient, I wouldn't question it, and I would just give her four cycles of an anthracycline-based regimen. In this 71-year-old woman, I have to say that I'd probably think long and hard about doing it, knowing that the benefits are really quite modest. She comes to you with a referral, and she's had an ocotype, and it's high. Theoretically, if you had an ocotype that had a high recurrence score, would that change your approach? Well, it changes it minimally because she still has chemotherapy-resistant disease. And while you know there is some benefit, as Edith mentioned, from another regimen and a different agent, you know, unfortunately, her likelihood of having benefit is modest. In terms of studies going on, there's the NSABP study. We've actually had a series of pilot studies that Kathy's group has participated in as well where we've used bevacizumab in these patients, and there's going to be a randomized study through the Translational Breast Cancer Research Consortium that randomized patients to low-dose oral metronomic chemotherapy, CM, with bevacizumab versus no treatment in patients who have received preoperative chemotherapy and have significant residual disease. That study will actually be open to any patient with ER negative disease who has residual disease and patients who have a high disease burden like this with ER positive disease. I'm going to ask Alan in a second what happened to the patient. Um, Kathy, what do we know about sunitinib and breast cancer? What was the rationale for the NSABP doing the study? So we know a little bit about sunitinib and breast cancer. There was a phase two study that Eric and our groups both participated in that looked at sutent monotherapy in patients with pretty highly refractory disease. The trial required that you've had previous anthracyclines and taxanes. You could have had up to two non-anthracycline and taxane-containing regimens for metastatic disease, which the group will realize means most patients had had up to that limit. So almost three-quarters of the group had had capecitabine. There was a fair number that had had venerelbine and gemcitabine as well. Overall response rate in that group of patients was about 7 to 8%, or maybe 11% overall response rate, with about 17 16% or so total clinical benefit rate. Interestingly, of the responding patients, three of the seven responding patients had triple negative disease, and sunitinib does inhibit CKIT, including wild-type CKIT, which is one of the genetic features of triple negative disease. Whether inhibiting it is important, we don't know yet, but at least it's common present. So there is an ongoing randomized trial with sunitinib monotherapy compared to a regimen of standard chemotherapy for which there's a menu of choices in triple negative patients. There are upfront trials looking at sunitinib in combination with paclitaxel, in combination with docetaxel, and now in combination with trastuzumab in HER2 negative and HER2 positive patients respectively. Those were small phase one and phase two experiences. So what we know from that is it's doable. The toxicity is not trivial. There is definitely more myelosuppression than you get by adding bevacizumab to those agents, but it's doable. And in the upfront setting, there's a randomized trial of paclitaxel, BEV versus paclitaxel 
docetaxel-sunitinib. There's also a randomized trial of docetaxel versus docetaxel-sunitinib to further place this agent. So that experience and I think the recognition that additional chemotherapy is likely to have minimal benefit. So I actually, in this lady, would have done things differently from the beginning. With strongly ERPR positive disease and lobular histology, what you would have to tell this lady is the likelihood of her having a pathologic complete response or a response that is robust enough to allow breast conserving therapy is essentially nil in the low single digit But her likelihood of benefiting from hormone therapy is actually quite substantial. And in the one randomized trial that compared neoadjuvant chemotherapy to neoadjuvant hormone therapy in postmenopausal women with ER-positive tumors, the clinical response and the likelihood of having breast-conserving therapy was the same with neoadjuvant hormones compared to neoadjuvant chemo, but obviously with a lot less toxicity. So this is a lady who I would have absolutely given neoadjuvant therapy to, but I would have given her neoadjuvant hormone therapy and then allowed her response or lack of response to hormone therapy to help us make decisions as to whether she might be ER positive but more hormone resistant and might benefit from chemotherapy. So I'm not surprised by the amount of additional disease. It's very likely that she has metastatic disease, whether there is enough of it there that you can detect by any other imaging modality. I don't know. I'm not enthused about giving her more chemotherapy because I think her likelihood of benefiting is very small. If I was inclined to give her an anthracycline, I would have given her a cycle of anthracycline before sending her back to the surgeon so I could see if it was benefiting her because I hate giving nice little old ladies chemotherapy with no way of knowing if I'm benefiting them when I think the likelihood of benefiting them is so small. Final comment from Eric. There was some discussion about the issue of genomic analysis as evaluating patients for neoadjuvant therapy. There's a little bit of data on that. Could that have helped determine whether to give her hormones or chemo? It's not something that I've done. I, too, would have given her preoperative hormonal therapy. And, in fact, if you look at the studies, the chance of converting her to someone who can have a lumpectomy is actually pretty substantial with preoperative hormonal therapy with the caveat that you have to be willing to continue it for four to six months oftentimes. And with the one other caveat that you have to watch the patients probably even a little more closely than the patients who are getting preoperative chemotherapy. Preoperative chemotherapy across the board, the proportion of patients who develop progression on preoperative chemotherapy is less than 5%. In the preoperative hormonal studies, it's about 10% of the patients. So you do have to be a little bit more careful there. So Alan, final comment in terms of where this patient is and what you're thinking about. I just started her on single agent adriamycin. I was going to give her four cycles every two weeks in the interest with all the positive nodes that I would want to make sure I gave her all the active agents. But I think the idea of getting a bone scan is a good idea. I think the comments about preoperative hormonal therapy were really very well taken. Alan? The data about the low-dose estradiol for metastatic breast cancer. You, you want to say anything low about Low-dose estradiol. So, you know, yesterday we talked about both low-dose and higher-dose, right. and, you know, I'd be interested in Kathy and Edith's comments, but, I, you know, I'll tell you that I have occasionally used this, but my issue is toxicity. I don't have any question that, like many other endocrine agents, that estradiol, given probably in a number of different doses, can be active. But the toxicity that you really have to be careful about, I think, is thromboembolic disease. 
Do you see nausea and vomiting? You see nausea as well. And, you know, it can be a difficult treatment for some people. For some people, it really can be a good treatment. But I've seen a number of really unpleasant complications with estrogen. I've used the high-dose estradiol at the 30 milligrams a day or 10 TID. Sometimes it works incredibly well. There are toxicity issues, but I have still used it in some of these folks who've perked along on endocrine therapy for eons. I just literally the day before I flew down here, started someone on the Matt Ellis lower dose version of high dose estrogen on the basis of his randomized phase two study. So that's my first experience with that. From his data, the toxicity is less, though certainly not zero in those lower dose patients. So there still are issues with morning sickness, type nausea, with fluid retention. There's still a risk of thromboembolic disease. 